Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the Canon with Alex Cernok. All right, senior drilling engineer at Noble Energy. And I have to apologize. On my last episode, John Clark, if you're listening, I totally forgot to do a formal intro. So my bad, bro. But everyone knows who you are. We got all your information in the show notes and we talked about your story. So again, I apologize about that. This is, you know, we're getting there. Not everything's dialed in just yet. But anyway, Alex, how's your week been, bud? Oh, it's been great. Weather's shaping up. Things are looking good. It's, it's, been, it's been a good week. How about yours? It's been good, man. You know, we just met on Monday. Our good buddy Brandon introduced us and it's funny in this, you know, in this space, it's you meet someone and you hit it off and next thing you know, you're sitting in front of a microphone recording conversations. So. It's a, it's incredible. Wouldn't have, wouldn't have ever guessed this on Sunday night. This is how this week was going to end up, but pretty cool stuff. Awesome. Well, that's the neat thing about the oil field nowadays is folks are getting into new areas, new media, podcasts, video blogs. I mean, the, the whole shabam, right? It's getting good. I have to compliment you and I, and I was going to uh, on Monday, but I wanted to wait till now. You got a beautiful mustache, Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. If anyone knows Alex and he's, you have him on LinkedIn, he looks completely different. This is the new and improved mustache version, dude. So what made you grow the duster, bro? Man, yeah, everybody's been asking at work, especially. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. So I grew out a beard, you know, kind of like yourself, just, you know, let it go. And then one day just decided to shave it off. And it kind of worked out perfectly because my wife's having her 30th birthday party at this karaoke place in a couple of weeks. So nice. I, I, naturally kind of look like Freddie, Freddie Mercury. So I'm going to kind of go to Freddie Mercury. So it worked out. <laughs> okay. So is that your favorite? Like when you do karaoke, is that who you typically go to? Oh, or man, No, I go for everybody. Everybody? It just, it just happened. The mustache worked out. So here we are. Do you know any Freddie Mercury songs? <laughs> I do. Do you want to just like for the audience, give them a little something? Maybe later. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We'd need some drinks before you start doing karaoke. Eh? <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. So do you like... Did you do you do beard oil? Do you do anything special to Got it? Got some or wax just, and some oil that I use, wax. you know, every nice. other day. But I need some wax or some something. Actually, my wife got me because before when I was growing it out, it would get so dry yeah. underneath and like it would flake and just look like super scuzzy. And, and then she got me some beard oil f- for Christmas. And I thought like, of course, I'm in sales, right? So I hear beard oil. I'm like, oh, it's a bunch of snake oil. Like right. who needs beard oil? But that right. stuff's legit. Like no, it actually helps. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Do you ever, do you going to twist it? I hadn't twisted it. It hadn't grown out that far yet. We might get there. I was kind of going for the Sam Elliott look. I don't know if you've seen like the yeah. Lebowski, you know, maybe going for that look one day. It's going to take a little bit of time, but that's, nice. that's where we're headed. Well, it's respectable and I, and I certainly appreciate the, the mustache growing. So you're from Texas, right? That's right. Grew up in Houston, Texas. So do you start your jeans? And the reason I ask that is because it came up in, in one of my recent episodes, and I wanted to ask. Currently, no, I do not. Okay. At once upon a time, when I was in a, an organization in school, yes, I did. Okay. So what's what's the background with starch jeans? Is that just a Texas thing? Or is that like a Southern thing? It's a Texas thing. thing or so, it's, it's kind of, a I guess, a cowboy kind of thing. But it, right. it, it gives just that clean cut, you know, straight-edged look to whatever you're wearing, and it it was just what the group did, so that's what I was doing. Right, and that's totally cool. I had never seen starch jeans till coming down into the states, and it just, it just looked like guys were walking around with cardboard pants, and it just blew me away, buddy. <laughs> so I got to ask you. Speaking of jeans, so I had a good friend at Chevron, previous company I worked for. 
Keegan Thomas, he told me that Canadians freeze their jeans instead of washing them. They just throw <laughs> them in the freezer. Is that true? So I've heard of that. I've tried it, but I didn't quite see it. But guys would put their, their jeans in the freezer for like for wrinkling, right? Right, right. Yeah. One of my buddies, Jeff Kidd, he actually, funny enough, is works at Chevron in Canada. Real trendy. He's the one who taught me that. And I tried it, but... When you stuff your freezer full of jeans, I mean, you, you just it doesn't leave much room for your meat. So <laughs> I kind of got away from it, but yeah, it's just too funny. I was, and I was talking to one of my customers at uh, there's a drilling tech there, and and I was we, she was laughing because she listened to one of the episodes, and we were talking about the starch jeans things, and she said I have a funny story. So she went to high school with a guy that was so particular about his starch jeans that when he would go to the bathroom he would take his jeans off and then hang them so he didn't sit on the toilet and bunch them up so like that's next level (laughs) that is next level i was just like this is a whole nother like we could just go on for hours about the starch jeans things and like just hearing people's stories about like how serious they are because there's like different like light and like there's like lots of starch little starch there's like options within the starch world but anyway, I just find it so fascinating. It's just such a different thing. It is different. It's it's next level. I'm I'm not into it anymore. But right. yeah, once upon a time. Hey, it's all good, man. I wear skinny jeans and people make fun of me for that. And I don't give a crap. <laughs> so podcast, we're here on the podcast. This is the first time you've been on a podcast. Dude. It is, yep. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for popping your cherry here with us. Do you listen to podcasts? I do. I've listened to the Joe Rogan podcast quite a bit. Okay. Uh, i got a buddy in Austin that also runs a podcast, the Sunday Scaries podcast, Will DeFreeze listen to that every week a couple others here and there jocko willings podcast oh, yeah. every now and then but those are pretty pretty much the three that i stick to okay so the sunday scaries for everyone out there they're out of austin right right great group out there it's more of a comical like it's more of a comedy or do a brief little explanation on it and we'll link it to the show notes because it's absolutely amazing for sure there's definitely some comedy involved a lot of shout outs they have some good folks that come on every now and then but it's uh just kind of a good overall overview on how to get through those those dark bluesy Sundays if, nice. if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, everybody does, especially in the oil field. You know, we like to party hard. Speaking of Joe Rogan, have you listened to the Alex Jones episode? I have not. That's on the to-do list. Holy I haven't listened to that one yet. Smokes, fasten your seatbelt, buddy. Pull it's up. Oh, it's hilarious. So he talks about and and I know we're getting off topic here. And one of the reviews I had, and I'm just gonna mention it, is they said if you can get past like the first fifteen minutes of shenanigans on my show, then we get into the technical <laughs> stuff. But like I just find that stuff entertaining as well. So he's talking. So on that, on the Alex Jones episode, he talks about San Francisco having an alien base where they have people taking hardcore levels of psychedelics and having meetings with aliens to make intergalactic deals. I laughed so hard and I didn't know whether to take him serious or not because this was kind of at the beginning of the episode. But then he goes on forever talking about how this all happened. So if you're into like weird conspiracies and stuff like that, that is something you need to listen That's to. That's the one. Yeah, it's funny. So anyway, if, when you listen to it, if we meet again, we'll have to chat about it. Yeah, for sure. Another thing they talk about on there is the flat earth. Are you Have you heard of the flat earth? Yes, I've heard of this. Yes. So again, it's, it's crazy. They have a documentary on Netflix and it's the people that believe in the flat earth, and if there's anyone out there that listens to it and or that is a flat earther, I commend you for being very interesting. And I'd love to have you on the show so I can ask you some questions because I just have multiple questions. But Alex Jones said he was going to fund some research and go to the edge of the earth to the ice wall. And so he's going to prove this theory wrong. And so if he does that, I'm going to be following along because I, I just I don't know how anyone could truly believe that. But Hey, whatever it is, I'll what it is. Along too, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the flat Earth, it's awesome. Yeah, if you if you're a Netflix and chill guy, you need to watch it. It's about an hour and a half of of just nonsense, but it it makes you think how 
it's either like people truly believe that or they're doing it for attention. You know what I mean? It's like anyone will do anything for attention. And so it just, it's crazy, but well, let's get going again here. I know we're getting off topic, but I wanted to start this one off about some events. So we've got some happy hours. We're launching a Midland and Dallas Fort Worth happy hour in April. We have our super happy hour here in Houston. It's every last Tuesday of the month. Our next one's going to be March 26th. So come out and enjoy a cold beer with the OGGN group here at the Cannon. We've got beer sponsored by Carbog and food sponsored by HEB. And it's a great opportunity to network with other individuals in oil and gas. And it's not it's not specifically drilling guys, completions guys or reservoir. It's it's anyone in the oil field. There's a lot of finance folks. There's a lot of startup tech group folks there. So it's it's a mix of everybody, which is kind of nice. We've got the Houston Professional Petroleum Data Expo, April 9th and 10th. That's here in Houston. And OGGN, we're super pleased to be part of the SPE GCS upcoming golf tournament. That's going to be Monday, April 8th. That's at the Kingwood Country Club. And if you click the show notes, you can register and get a chance to win either podcast host of the day. So you'd have lunch with your favorite podcast host from OGGN, sit alongside them as a co-host while we record an episode. And if you're microphone shy, don't worry, you can just hang out and then sort of watch the fun from the sidelines or an expert interview. If you're involved in business in any way and would love the chance to tell people about what you do, then this one's for you. Choose the podcast you'd like to be on and we'll do the rest to get you an interview and set you up. So, and one other quick announcement, summer's around the corner. And if you're from Katy, Texas, this is the place you got to hit up. KTX Fit. If you're looking for your summer bod, drop in there, tell them you heard about us on, uh, or tell them you heard about them on the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. And yeah, if you're looking for that summer bod and you're in Katy, that's the place to go. So let's get going. Alex, tell us a little bit about your backstory before life in the oil field. Cool. So yeah, I grew up in Houston, Texas. I went to high school here. went to a college in Austin, Texas, the University of Texas. Studied mechanical engineering and got in the oil field right away out of school. Okay. So what made you decide mechanical engineering? So my father was a chemical engineer by trade, and he's been doing that at a refinery for, gosh, going on the last 45 years. So I wanted to do something a little more, I guess, functional, not not as specific as petroleum engineering. Didn't know a whole lot about it. Going into school, didn't have a huge network of friends that were involved with it. So something a little more across the board, and that's honestly what I got. But once I started getting into the technical coursework, I kind of realized, you know, I this was something I wanted to do. I had some buddies that got into drilling, started working rigs, kind of like yourself and Brandon. And that, that really interested me. So I, I kind of steered my, my interests that way and wound up with an interview over at Chevron. And, you know, here I am now. Nice. So before we get into your career part, what was it like going to school in Austin? Oh, it was great. They've got everything. I yeah. Mean, you, you could be locked up studying for exams all week, or you could head down to 6th Street. And then you're about an hour away from beautiful lakes, hills, outdoors, some of the best music in the world, some of the best food in the world. It's it's a great city. Yeah. Would you ever go back if you had the opportunity? If I had the opportunity, I'd go back in a heartbeat. I love Austin. It's close to my heart. My wife loves it. it it's a great place. Interesting. And where's your wife from? Is she from Texas? My wife's actually from Beaumont, Texas. Okay, uh, yeah. We went to school together and she lives here now, obviously. So. Okay, right on. Before we move on to the career aspect, I just wanted to say... Let's leave a review, folks. If you can, please do me a huge favor. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and just leave a review, whether it's good or bad. I welcome all the feedback. It just helps me plan my business and and sort of make sure that I'm getting the the listeners what they want. So 
leave a review or I've even had folks hit me up on LinkedIn just to tell me about what they think and how I've either helped them or folks have even called and said, Hey, you know, I know you're in sales and can you, you know, you got a good podcast. Can you help me out? I've got, you know, looking for some insight. I'm early in my career. I'm willing to help anybody out there. So yeah, just hit me up any way you can. I'd appreciate it. I got a review this week. I'd like to read it. It's a good one here. It says, okay, I'm going to write the same thing for multiple podcasts with OGGN, but I love them all. You guys do a great job covering all aspects of the oil and gas industry. I'm a safety coordinator, salesman, equipment operator, truck driver. Well, you got a lot of duties, bud. For a small dirt contractor who is new to the industry, your podcasts are a great resource for me. Keep up the good work. Mark, Jake, Sarah, Page, Colin, Justin, and Patrick, and all your crews in the background. Thank you. Certainly appreciate that. That was from Montego23. Appreciate the love, buddy. So you already answered this. What made you go to school? And so you talked about that and you did mechanical. Where did you land after you graduated? So when I graduated, I went to work for Chevron in a program that they were offering at the time. I called it the Accelerated Development Program. And it was an opportunity to go work rigs, you know, as a drilling contractor for your first year out of school. So that's exactly what what we did. It was a group of 16 of us, I believe. We went and worked deep water Gulf of Mexico on the drill ships. Basically, as seconded Transocean employees wearing Transocean coveralls, going through everything from roustabout to floor hand, derrick hand, pump hand, driller, sitting with the tool pushers for an entire year. Did three week hitches oh, with wow. those guys. So, probably not quite as labor intensive as, as what you and, and Brandon <laughs> have seen, you know, up in Canada on the rigs in West Texas. But yeah. everything's a little more automated. But it was it was good. It was. If we learned anything from that year, it was it was humility and, and character building. Like like I've heard you say before, you know, the time on the rigs, it, it really molds you into a good person that you are today. Yeah, no, and that's and, and I'm glad you say that. And that's one thing I respect highly about the big operators is they've got the the capital and the money to be able to invest in people to go to the rigs, sit out there, and you yeah, you may not be throwing tongs, but you're you're talking with the hands, you're there on the floor, you're you're seeing the day to day to where you understand the culture and how when we plan things on paper, there's a lot of reasons why they may not be executed the way you expect them to be. Exactly. So that getting that understanding and even just talking the lingo, if you talk to if you're out on the rig talking to a driller or whatever, that sort of gives you the credibility to say, hey, these guys have spent time on a rig because there's nothing like making a call to the field. In the field, guys, they say yes or yes, or, and then they get behind your back and they're like, that blah, 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 in the office doesn't know. He's never For sat sure. a day out here. But so that I, I think is extremely valuable. And like you said, humility. I mean, there's there's not enough of that out in our industry but so i certainly respect you for for going out and doing that and, and for chevron for offering that type of training man that's fantastic so how was offshore and uh, do you have any good war stories from being out on a rig oh man i'd have to think of think of some i'm sure i do i can't think of any right now but i mean if, it, if something comes back to you just let us know but what was it like working offshore what was, like your first trip out there were you like this is crazy it's exactly what i said i remember landing on the helicopter first first trip offshore i think i was 22 years old got off the helicopter the derrick's blocked from the living accommodation so you can't really see anything right away you go to the living accommodations and everything's kind of tight and everything's white a lot of fluorescent lights people everywhere and i remember they told us we were working night shifts so Went to bed, probably could, I couldn't sleep because I was so excited. Got out, you know, got my red coveralls on, my orange hard hat, step outside, and I look at the Derek, and I was just like, holy crap, what did I get myself into? <laughs> yeah. And I remember me and my buddy Spencer, we were working the same time, and it was it was just like, wow. That, for, that first 12 hours, I just couldn't believe it because it's those drill ships a little different than the than the rigs out in West Texas, you know. It's, oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's something to see. You get used to it a, a little bit after a while. Uh, did that for a year, and then... 
actually went over to Thailand for a year and was working okay. tender assisted barge rigs, so a little smaller rigs, still still offshore, shallow water stuff, highly directional wells. That was a really good experience too, just because it's it's fast factory mode. So mm. we got to see a lot of the the fundamentals over and over and over again. But offshore was great. I'd, all in all, probably spent about six years rotating offshore in the Gulf of Mexico and Thailand. I wouldn't trade it for a thing. Right. Well, it's a good training ground. And I know for myself, I was a mud engineer offshore for for a little bit on a jackup. And you really, because things move at a far less pace or it's just a little slower. So everything just takes more time to where you can really dial into every little operation that's going on. And, and you have time to you know, whether if you're running casing or changing out equipment or doing things, it just takes so much more time to where you can really get dialed in, but you're not seeing quite as much turnover. But it's a great training ground logistics amongst everything. I mean, tell us a little bit about from a drilling engineer perspective or an operator's perspective, how you have to plan your business like on offshore, especially deep water compared to on land. I mean, what does that look like? For sure. So I worked as a, a field drilling and completions engineer for just about four years offshore and that's that's pretty much the majority of the job is logistics because you're planning not only today's work, tomorrow's work, you got to be on top of work two weeks out. Otherwise, it's going to come around and bite you in the butt. You don't have a truck that can hot shot something to you in two to three hours like you do out in Pecos, Texas. You got an eight, eight to 18 hour boat ride. On top of that, you got another three to four hours from the truck to get from the shop to the the dock. So you're looking at almost 20 hours from a phone call being made to having equipment out on the deck. You factor that into all your operations. So you've got a 24-hour, you've got a seven-day and even a 28-day planner forecasting operations based on P10, P50, P90 times that you've seen on offset wells. And when things go well, factoring weather into everything. And it's you've got so many people involved it's 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 really incredible whereas out in you know west texas you've got a company man and a, a rig clerk that are on top of their stuff and they've got they've got a, a contact list for everything you could think of and they make a phone call and it's there in you know two to three hours yeah so it sounds like logistics is obviously plays a huge role what about from a from a technology standpoint is there a pretty big difference from what we do on land compared to offshore with regards to drilling there is sure there is at the end of the day you know you're turning to the right Unless, yep. unless you're from Canada. but <laughs> Yeah, we turn to the left, right? Everything's reverse thread. Everyone gets all messed up up there, yeah. No, at the end of the day, you know, a rig floor is a rig floor. You turn to the right, you drill a whole section, you run casing, and you cement it. But right. the nuances and the details really get magnified out in deep water versus out in West Texas. The the grassroots engineering and, and technical work done ahead of time is on an order of magnitude than it is really on the West Texas group. Just because it's, it's not absolutely necessary when you get a basis of the design done for a West Texas well and you can repeat that and use that over and over and over again because the engineering works whereas deep water you've got kind of a a general base design but every well is completely different makes sense you have to spend the time three months six months ahead of time doing all your your grassroots bottom to the top engineering and it takes a lot of time and a lot of people no kidding how long would it take to drill a well on the stuff that you were on we're on average uh the development field i was in on average it was taken two months three months okay time. and so how deep were those wells they were typically around thirty thousand foot measure depth seven seventy five hundred feet of water 
lower tertiary trend, Wilcox formation, really deep, complex wells. Okay. What was some mud weights that you were seeing? Was it pretty high pressure stuff? Real high pressure. I think the highest mud weight we saw in one of the exploration wells, we were drilling upwards of 16 pound. Okay, that's getting heavy. Towards production hole section. Not not the heaviest you see in, in, in some other places, but it's heavy stuff for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, and especially with, like you said, it just takes a lot of time and you really got to do some serious engineering. I mean, aside from the, the technical complexity, you got to keep in mind the safety aspect of that too. I mean, you can't just jump in your truck and get at, you know, rip down the road if right. something happens. I mean, everyone out there is in the middle of the water. And if for you've sure. ever seen, and for the listeners, if you've ever seen the movie Horizon, I mean, it can get scary fast. So that, you know, us as an oil field industry, especially offshore, that gets taken to a whole nother level, especially after Macondo. So anyone who's worked offshore, it's, they understand how important it is, all your JSAs, all your safety stuff. Because, yeah, you can't just hop in a truck. There's a serious exit plan. And if weather's crazy, I mean, the water could be, you know, you you could have huge waves 20, 30 feet high or whatever. Just it's a a whole nother ballgame out there. So I commend everyone who's worked offshore because you put your life at risk, just like we all do driving our own cars every day. But that just adds another level of risk. And, you know, with your families being at home, it's, uh, you know, again, a huge shout out to all the people that work offshore. There's a, it's a serious sacrifice to pull hydrocarbons out of the world. So no, for sure. Yeah, it's, one of the advisors I worked with back at Chevron, he, he used to say, you know, health and safety and and risk is inversely proportional to your distance from the wellhead. And you know, when you're offshore, you're all kind of located in on a drill ship, a jack up, a rig. That's you know, you're stuck there. You can't move. You are stuck in the highest risk area to work in versus off i mean out in west texas yeah you're working out on a pad or on a rig but you can you can run you can drive away when things happen yeah exactly so tell us how the transition between working over at chevron to where you're at now there was definitely a learning curve a lot of it associated just with the speed and the pace of the work like i said you know working these deep water wells you had you had three six months to drill a well you had just as much time planning the well we're spitting days these wells out in 20 25 days so it's constantly working on the next well, working on the next pad. Yeah. Albeit it's a little less complex, uh, the engineering work is, but it's it's just a lot more. The bulk of it is is a lot more. So that was the hardest part for me is not necessarily having the time to focus on individual minutia and spending you know days, weeks on one facet of the well. Right. Whereas you, you got to get that done now, and you got to get the rest of the well done now, and then you got to do. 10 more things as well yeah in order to get it ready and planned right because it's all about volume out there right it's That's like right. can you repeat what we're doing like a thousand times over and get better every single time and so yeah you just don't have the time to nitpick certain things it's like you got people waiting on you and and vice versa so uh, the the pace i could imagine is quite a bit different so you worked at chevron and then you made a switch over to to where you're at now the company you're at now is a little bit smaller than Chevron. What was it like going from a super major to to a company of this size? I'll have to think about that one a little bit. Definitely the, the number of people for sure, much smaller. The support, I should say, I guess, there's not as much technical support. You, you work in, especially in deep water, it doesn't matter really what company you're at. You've got subject matter experts for, for everything. And you've got layers of not only subject matter experts, but layers of, of management supervisors and mentors and other engineers that you can rely on and work with and bounce ideas off of and knock things around with before something's finally put in execution. You know, everything's 
peer reviewed a hundred times don't necessarily have that smaller company. It's a lot of the onus is on you, which is good. And that's kind of what I was looking for. A lot of the trust is, is with you. I'm sure there's checks and balances there are, but not as much because it's expected for you as the engineer to, with your credentials to do your job and do it to the best of your ability and, and, and get these wells put out. So that was probably the biggest difference right off the bat. Right, right. So would you say, so the culture is quite a bit different going to a smaller company? The culture itself is different. A lot of these smaller companies do have, just by nature, a lot of guys and gals that had come over from major companies. So a little bit of the culture from those majors, your Chevrons, Exxon, Shells, BPs, it comes over in spurts and waves, and you can see it a little bit in some and how processes and procedures are put together. But you don't see it as much, and it's it's really not as rigid. It's it's a little more fluid than it is at your super majors. There's there's not checklists for everything that you got to run down. There are good processes in place. It's good to have processes and procedures in place, but like like I've said and my drill manager says it it's it's not good to let them dictate your work. It's not it's not good to be defined by them. You got to have some freedom in your work and that's that's where we see it. Yeah, no that resonates. I I can too appreciate that. What makes the Permian and this is not necessarily a drilling question, but what makes the Permian so attractive? I mean, what why is it that everyone's flooding in there? I mean, what's your thoughts on that right now? So it's it's obviously been a booming basin for, for quite some time, but I think people are smaller companies, big companies, all everybody all around. A lot of people have had this acreage for a long time. Obviously, there's been a, a step change in development with unconventional horizontal drilling, completions design and new technology. So I think people are using that to their advantage now, but the IRRs at the end of the day is what drives, drives the work. So if, if it's, if it costs you X to drill and complete a well and you're getting X plus whatever it may be back, then it's a no brainer. Sure. And so how long have you been focused in drilling in the Permian at your role now? So I've been in my role for almost a year now. So not quite a year. Okay. So, and it's been in the pretty infancy stage, but have you seen even over the course of the year, any advancement in technology with regards to the drilling out there? So there's been in hard, you know, physical technology, not so much. There's always, you know, new bit designs coming out, new cutter designs coming out, nothing earth shattering to say where, where the biggest change I've seen at least since I've been in my role and slightly before that is with the data and how the data is being used and managed. Okay. So we have at our hands, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of wells worth of one second pace on data and not only that but tool data how do we use it to to our advantage right it's sitting there we've got it in a library but how do we manipulate it how do we interrogate it how do we beg how do we plead to get answers out of this data and that's really where the biggest changes have come come from so interesting we've got tools you know, Spotfire, Wellview, we use a, an online data aggregation manipulation tool, Mobilize, to throw up basically whatever we want to throw up. It's the data is how I look at it. It's your paint. And what you want to do with the data is, is paint a picture. And it's up to you to paint that picture. So Yeah, no, that's a good analogy, actually. And it sounds like a lot of companies out there, even companies out of California and Silicon Valley, are trying to make a push into oil and gas, mainly because we just have so much data. And they've spent, as even in the finance world, I, I actually met a guy at a happy hour last time. He was from, uh, I think he was from either Boston or New York, but he worked for a, a data company that dealt mainly with finance. And they came up, he was involved with coming up with a system to do automatic trading. And he said, 
he laughed at how much data we had compared to the finance world. He said the oil and gas has a has a fraction of what the finance world has, and they're so regulated. He said the oil and gas is easy. He's like, it's, <laughs> he's like, you guys are sitting on a landmine here. He's like, you should see what I deal with in in the finance world. Now I know that's very broad, and people out there may argue that point, but I'm just going off of my experience talking to this gentleman who is very knowledgeable in this space. But that's it's it's fun because. We are at the pinnacle of something extremely great and revolutionary with regards to how we, you know, produce hydrocarbons. And there's a lot of companies investing a lot of money in, in big data and even AI. Talking to a guy the other day, you know, their goal at their company is to be able to drill wells from Houston and push some buttons and you know ultimately have someone out there sort of supervising, but not have people in the dark, not have people mixing mud, right. not have drillers on a stick trying to, you know, figure out how to get unstuck. Like everything just all automated, it's, it's which work, would be insane. It's, it's working to that one day. If it, I don't know if we'll ever get there, but y- you see things like remote directional drilling. We, we've got, you know, in-house directional drillers that, that slide and steer from Houston wells that are out in West Texas. Yeah. I know some other companies are adopting, you know, similar methodologies, but it's, it's pretty cool. Wow. Yeah, that's exciting stuff. What's your opinion on the future of the Permian? I mean, is it like it's there's a huge bubble that's growing right now? Is it? Do you see it ever dying or like I mean, obviously it's driven off commodity prices, but I mean, what's anything that you've heard? So, I mean, you, yeah, you hit it on the head of the nail there. It's definitely driven by commodity prices and you saw activity fluctuate significantly back in 2014-2015 with everybody from your major operators to your smaller operators and i think it's going to continue that way it's base business for a lot of companies it's a basin that's been around for a long time and i think it's going to be around for a long time inventory out there for a lot of companies is massive i've heard with certain companies they have inventory for the the next 35 years wow so it's really the place to be well i was reading some articles in heart energy and they're talking about exxon and chevron specifically and they want to be each at a million barrels a day yep. by like 2025 or 22 or something like that. I think Chevron's planning, either Chevron or Exxon's planning on having 55 rigs out there by the end of the Incredible. year. Incredible. That's absolutely insane to have a <laughs> drilling fleet like that. Some, I mean, I know being from Canada, I don't even know if there's 55 rigs drilling in Canada right now, <laughs> let alone one operator. It's absolutely crazy. It's wild. Yeah, it is. But it's exciting to say the least. I mean, being energy independent and the way things are going here in the U.S., you know, aside from geopolitics, there's a lot of, you know, unfortunate events happening throughout the world. But we're in a good place to be. We're in the heart of the oil field right now. And who knows? And 10 years from now, we could be, you know, who knows, right? But maybe, you know, we... There's that uh, the big green push that's going on right now with, you know, we don't need to get into politics, but who knows? We may be all turned in windmills here. You, you never, never know. know. You never know. <laughs> yeah, right. You never rule anything out. Yeah, exactly. So something we always hear about in the Permian are all these ducks. Is that an issue with you guys at your company right now? Or is, is the bottleneck slowly starting to kind of free up or what does that look like? So there's a couple of ways to look at it. It can be looked at as a bottleneck. It can be looked at as a strategy as well, too. With us, it's it's really not an issue. So, okay. As as far as I know, being being the drilling engineer that I am, it's it's not necessarily an issue. But that's the way that I understand it. Is yes, it it can be looked at as a bottleneck and potentially negative. But it can also be looked at as a strategy. You know, to to show investors, hey, this here's our inventory. Here's here's what we got. And people on Wall Street tend to tend to like that. Gotcha. Well, I just have a few more questions before we wrap things up. With regards to drilling, how can operators set themselves apart and be successful in the current market? place out there, given that that the talent pool is slowly being diluted just because you have so much activity out there. How do operators maintain 
a consistent and, and even uh, just performance that beats the status quo. Because ultimately, you want to drill faster, deeper, and you know less expensive every right. time. I mean, how do you continue to drive and just push for that? Right. So yeah, everybody's after the records, the barn burners, the fastest bit runs, you know. But I think where the the money is saved is is not necessarily those step changes in performance, but like you said consistency driving you know if, if you're getting 23 day wells consistently hey that's not bad do it over and over and over and over again you cut your costs where you can you work out your contracts where you can and, and you go from there but i think a lot of the the programs and a lot of the the well plans that people currently have i think they're pretty set in stone out there i don't think you're going to see anything crazy change on that that front but where the money saved is is driving performance saving you know 10 minutes here 15 minutes there because that adds up to an hour sooner or later and that hour adds up to six hours sooner or later and if, especially if you have a rig fleet and you accumulate that towards the end of the year that could be a free well right for sure you know you save 24 hours over a 24-hour rig fleet that's huge your low-hanging fruit most of it's gone so it's about saving those those small times you know racking instead instead of laying down bha before getting out of get out of the hole to run casing, you know, rack it back and go right into running casing, lay down BHA offline, small stuff like that. It all adds up. And I think a lot of that, you know, and it was unfortunate going through the downturn that we recently had, but companies really had to dissect what they were doing and how they could save time. And there was just such a, a mass amount of people that all of a sudden didn't have rigs to look after. So then you had like three engineers looking after one rig and it, it was hell for service companies because then they gave them projects. But ultimately as an industry, I think we became so much more efficient. Oh, for sure. So it's, it was a good filtering system. And I think as an industry, I think we capitalized on that. And now where people were making money at you know fifty five and sixty five dollar oil companies now are, are able to make money at thirty five and forty five. Right. So we it needed to happen. It did. It's it's the new normal. It's you know we got fat and happy and comfortable with whatever days from spud people were drilling at whatever time and cost they were doing it at. And now, like you said, we went under a microscope and we're forced to to find ways to shave time and, and money. And here we are at, and this is the new normal now. So it can only get better from here. Right. Right. Well, look, that's it for the sort of the technical and career stuff. Do you have any daily routines or habits that keep you focused and motivated to, to, to just keep grinding every day? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm up uh, probably by 445, five o'clock every day, you know, in the office around six, six thirty. First thing I do is check my Wellview reports, call the rig, see what they've been doing overnight, look at pace on. You know, that's pretty consistent probably with drilling engineers across the fleet. What about before you even get to the office? I mean, do you just get up, throw your clothes on and go? Or do you do like... You know, do you tie left shoe, then right shoe? Do you brush your teeth from one side to the other? I mean, nothing, do you do anything like no, super religious? Nothing that nutty. I'm pretty pretty good about making my own breakfast, bringing it with me to the office, letting my cute little dog out. And I'm usually listening to a podcast or something on the way to work or an audio book. I've gotten a lot better about that recently. But cool. I try my best to use that 30-minute that drive to my advantage. Awesome. Anything, so aside from drilling holes in the ground, what, you got a favorite hobby or what? Yeah, for sure. Love working out, love playing golf. The last couple months I've been training for a half iron man actually so that's oh that, dude that's honestly kept up most of my time after work i i don't know how people do it before work i just can't do it <laughs> i hear you six days a week you know i've been training for that coming up in april so that's uh, huge yeah. man i did a triathlon and it beat me up so bad man i didn't train for it properly but nonetheless i know that takes a huge commitment so uh, i'm anxious to hear how it goes man that'll be exciting no, where is it I'm where's excited. that beautiful gal was in texas nice yep. that'll be a beauty you said in april yeah april 7th weather should be just 
decent right there. It should be 60s, 70s. I'm hoping it turns out nice. Buddy, that's so cool. Yeah. Good for you, man. Yeah, thank you. Super random question, and it was something I heard the other day. I was talking with Buddy, but did you have his favorite cereal as a kid? Favorite cereal as a kid, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Cinnamon Toast Crunch. 100%. You had to eat it quick, because if not, it would get soggy. Get soggy. That's <laughs> that's the worst. That's right. I just I, I had to throw that in there, because <laughs> I was talking to a buddy, and I know I had a few, but Lucky Charms was mine, and I would not I would only eat the marshmallows, oh, so yeah. I wouldn't call that cereal. It was oh, just yeah. like sugar bomb to the <laughs> dome, but... Anyway, let's take a break here. I want to talk about our giveaway. So Oil and Gas on Shore were sponsored by Tendeka, and they're known for their innovation in advanced completions and production optimization. They're giving away a mini portable projector. It's a goody mini LED projector, perfect for home theater, boardroom, office, and pocket video. For your favorite viral video, you can throw it up at the office on the board and have everyone take a look. It's hilarious. It's a good little piece to have at the office. Anyway, for a chance to win, click the link in the show notes, and we'll announce the lucky winners as they come in. If you're looking for more information on Oil & Gas Onshore, take a look at www.oilandgasonshore.com. That'll be in the show notes. Thanks again for joining me today. What's the best way if people want to reach out? I mean, obviously, you don't want people bombarding you, but are you a LinkedIn, MySpace, Facebook? I mean, what do you do, man? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, feel free to reach out for anything, anytime. Cool. That's awesome, Alex. We appreciate you opening your arms for that. We'll put your LinkedIn in the show notes. And that's a wrap. Unless you got anything else to say, man, we'll uh, we'll close it out. No, yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to my buddy Frank Morgan in Austin. He actually introduced me to the to the show after I'd spoken to you about it. He's awesome. He's, he's a religious listener. He just got engaged yesterday to Annie. Just a shout out to those two guys. Love you guys. Hey, congrats. That's awesome. And you said it was Frankie? Frank Morgan, yeah. Frank Morgan. Awesome, bud. Appreciate the support. If you can, leave a review. If you already did, appreciate the love, brother. And that's a wrap. And always remember, oil and gas on shore, providing energy for the world through innovation. One well at a time. Signing out. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. 